freedom and censorship can't exist in the same world. And that's true whether it's the government or private corporations who do the censoring. Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, and welcome to the Coleman Nation podcast. It's a show where I sit down with guests to discuss the future of free expression and thought in our interconnected world. Here, we will focus on issues involving social media, cancel culture, and free expression that everybody who cares about ideas or freedom should be wrestling with. Hello, culminators. This is one of those times where I am talking to an old friend. Uh, the last interview I did, I had virtually no exposure to or contact with my uh, interview buddy before, more or less before the interview, until before the interview, and it turned out to be a really good one. Uh, so I don't think that we should say, therefore, this won't be a good one. Bill and I have known each other for many years. We can say, in fact, to the contrary, a fortiori, if that was a good one, this will be a great one. Bill Jacobson of Legal Insurrection. Everybody knows his website. Everybody knows Bill. Thank you for joining us. I'm going to throw up just a shot of what the uh, website looks like these days. Awful handsome these days. Very slick. What is Legal Insurrection, Bill? Is it a blog? Is it a, is it a magazine? Is it a, a, a hippie hangout? What, what, tell, me, tell, me, tell us the story. Yes, I think it's all of the above. So it started as a solo blog that I started in October 2008 on Google Blogger. And I was solo for two years. So back then, blogs were very common. And added a third person who was a student in year three and over time have expanded. We now have people who work for us. Uh, so Legal Insurrection is our main platform. We did have for a 2008, while. 2008, you said you started in 2008? 2008, up to three okay. weeks before, four weeks before the 2008 election, uh, which was actually the impetus for me starting it. Uh, and uh, we, uh, also, at one point, had a website called College Insurrection, which we ended up holding into Legal Insurrection. And then the big change that we had is in 2009, we uh, became a 501c3 and launched Legal Insurrection Foundation. So there are now two pieces to Legal Insurrection. They're all part of the same entity. There's the traditional website, which is news analysis, a lot, mischief making, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and then there's the foundation side, which is more research oriented, more, uh, you know, uh, deep research on a variety of issues, publication of a variety of issues, and a, does a lot of other things. We do a lot of uh, public records requests, things like that. So we have a bit of a split personality. So is it now a blog, a website, whatever? Yes, it's all of the above. That's exactly what it is. And what you've done, in my opinion, is, you know, in, in many important ways, you have, you're one of the earliest guys to have confounded the definition or the popular, the popular understanding of the definition of what a journalist is, because you don't, you don't work for a mainstream or a corporate media company. But on the other hand, you're not someone like uh, my 
client Project Veritas, which is so associated with a, an aggressive kind of pol politicized focus in the stories they cover that they've managed to get a, a completely unmerited um, reputation as being inaccurate or being uh, fake news or something. Which, you know, again, they've, they've never ever been shown to have to have done that or been that. Legal insurrection is consistently transparent. Well, actually, why don't you actually tell Coleman, Culminator listeners, what um how it is that you and I came to know each other? Because that's actually going to be a segue into our discussion. Well, it's so long ago, I can't remember the first instance no, I don't either. that we met. I'd really have to go back, but it's probably been 10 years or more. Uh, you know, there I would there think is, so. There is an industry out there. Uh, that I guess they're called, um, what are they called? Uh, copyright trolls. trolls, okay? Right. Uh, who hounded us and everybody else. Um, and fortunately, with your advice, we haven't gotten that in a while because we're much better than we used to be. But, you know, 12, 14 years ago, you'd see a picture, you'd grab it, and then all of a sudden you get a demand letter from somebody. So we learned not to do right. that. And uh, right. so uh, that's how we first met, and you were extremely generous, uh, your listeners may not know that you were really, uh, your host is one of the heroes of the conservative right of center blogosphere because- um, Because they don't know what a blogosphere is. Ron, Forget about it. What they don't know about <laughs> Pro bono work for little tiny blogs who made no money, okay? Maybe generated 50 bucks a month in advertising, uh, but we get these demand letters. Uh, and so, so I want to pat you on the back if you're not willing to pat yourself on the back. Well, anyone who follows uh, th this and follows me on social media knows that I'm really not all that shy about patting myself <laughs> on the back. Uh, but I just, you know, I'm looking at, at just how good your site looks now, but there way down on the bottom of the right nav bar is this really cute little guy. <laughs> that's right. And that's the, the pre-bearded, pre-balded Ron Coleman <laughs> back when that was my likely, and, and if you click it, it takes you to my blog, which I started in 2005, coming up on, and I had, I, I consider this a year of not blogging anymore, unlikely to confusion, because it, I, so many other things that are much more interesting to me. Um, these are all reruns, re, re um, but because I was an early blogger in intellectual property, I had the opportunity to do a lot of pro bono work and learn a lot of stuff and really raise my, what we would now call social media profile by getting links from Glenn Reynolds on Instapundit, links from you, links from the national debate, if you remember that one. Um, and also from liberal blogs. There are lots of left of center people who I helped out as well. Back in the days when things were not so black and white and people could talk to each other like human beings. And it was actually a strategy that I employed because of the, the great um, challenge in developing business as, a, you know, as an entrepreneur um, to basically buy free advertising from bloggers. And I think it actually worked out very well for me. Uh, uh, you and I, though, I, I have talked over the years many times about the growth of legal insurrection, and you've had interesting questions, not only copyright troll issues, but 
what we found over the years, and this was the case in, of certainly the, uh, involving the national debate, what we found was uh, Bob Cox was threatened by the New York Times with uh, a DMCA takedown. I mean, they actually did take down his website because he published a parody of what the T New York Times correction column would look like if they applied it to opinion columns. <laughs> and that was pure parody, pure fair use commentary. Um, and not only that, they were claiming a trademark. It was not a copyright violation. They were just saying uh, infringement. They were saying that it looked like their website. I helped them out with that. And what we saw beginning about 10 years ago was the use of intellectual property claims as a proxy for shutting down speech, either competitive speech, in other words, you're, you're an unauthorized, so-called so unauthorized um, distributor or retailer of my product, which is not really a thing. Yeah, I don't need your permission to sell things. <laughs> or you are a competitor in the market of ideas. So you've had situations and I don't, I don't think, uh, I mean, this is being recorded. So if, if you find that I'm saying anything you wouldn't want us to publish, we will delete it. But I don't, we've had situations where people have tried to use the DMCA and copyright claims against you to prevent you from showing videos of public meetings. And that is, that's something that our client, uh, Andy No is now facing. It's, it is, and it still kind of works unless people have a friend like me. Yeah, it's true. I mean, somebody sends you a demand letter, often from a big law firm, and you're facing, okay, I can take it down or I can spend my annual salary paying a lawyer to defend it. Okay. And, and that power is absolutely used against us. The one I think you're referencing, and we've been public about it, so it's not private, um, is our YouTube account was taken down because an academic association uh, that we had reported on and we had um, posted some of their internal speeches regarding the boycott of Israel and written about it and reported on it, uh, served three takedown notices on us at YouTube simultaneously, claiming we were violating their copyright to the videos. Of course, they weren't the ones speaking um, and we were, it was certainly fair use, et cetera. But because they did three at once and YouTube has a, a three strike rule, normally YouTube, you get a takedown notice, you get notice of it, you can file a counter notice, et cetera. They just took us down. We managed to unravel that. And with your help, we did file counter notices against their takedown notices. And that would have shifted the burden to them to run to court to prosecute it, which of course they couldn't do and they didn't do. Uh, but this is the sort of thing that, I, from what I hear, goes on all the time, and it is certainly a way of silencing speech, the use of the intellectual property laws, not to protect your intellectual property, but to silence political opponents is absolutely a major problem, and most websites don't have the wherewithal to hire the legal help to fight it. And I also often don't have, I mean, a lot of times... The inquiries that I get about this, all I, I'm able to answer one or two questions. And just by asking somebody who understands it, people are able to realize they're not going to lose their homes. They're not going to. But if you don't have someone to ask, 
and one of the things Bob Cox and I tried to do when we setting up the, if you remember the old um, bloggers, bloggers, media, media, media. Was I, I know exactly what you're referring media to. Bloggers, media Bloggers Association, which of which I was the general counsel for a couple of years. And we did a lot of pro bono work. We were trying to set up like an insurance program and an education program because there is a need for education. There's also, as you pointed out at the beginning, there are a lot of bloggers who don't understand that. In fact, they often misuse the term public domain. Well, it was already on the internet, so it's the public domain, <laughs> right? No, that is not what public domain means. No, no, no. Um, and I still, you know, I, I still find posts of mine from likely to confusion when I want to use one to make some kind of point where, especially with videos, YouTube is really policed. But, you know, they use algorithms on YouTube that are, Phenomenal. I mean, they, you know, they usually say they can't send a man to the moon. Now say they can't make a vaccine that works <laughs> for certain illnesses, but they sure as hell can smell 10 seconds of, uh, you know, something that has been uh, under, the, under the, that has been published by some famous musician. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, we once got a video um, demonetized, not that I really cared, because we had a video of a political rally. At the political rally, they were playing a song. Our video was flagged for violating the copyright, even though we it was just a video of a political rally, which in the background was playing a song. So it's a, it, there's so many landmines out there. It, it's one we didn't care about, so we didn't try to fight it. I don't know if we were legit or not. I think we would be. Um, it was- Well, everyone remembers, you remember this, right? The dancing? Yeah. What, it's annoying enough. But I mean, anyway, we're getting it. Yeah. I'm, I'm taking us into my territory and away from the stuff you're doing. I've, so besides that, attack that kind of stuff bill what what is um have you had any have you had other experiences with attempts at deplatforming you uh, yeah tell me about yeah it. we um we have there is um we got kicked off amazon associates for reasons they absolutely refused to tell us um they told us that we were um, spreading emails spreading links by email uh, in violation of their terms of service. I said, actually, no, we're not. Can you give me evidence that we're actually doing that? They said, no, you are doing it. I said, I've checked with everybody. We're not doing that. Show me an example. They said, we can't do that because our investigative process is proprietary. <laughs> okay, so, so we got kicked off Amazon Associates. We are now going through something which I haven't been public yet with where we're getting kicked off of a platform uh, or they've chosen not to renew us. Um, and it's pretty clear it's for political reasons. Thankfully, they didn't say on Friday, you're gone Monday. They said on a Friday at 5.20 p.m., we're not going to renew your, your term when it renews in February. Um, and I think and this is a service that you can, I assume, replace. Yes, yes. But we've heard that they're doing that to a lot of right of center groups. So um, far left wing, progressive software company buys another software company and starts culling its clientele, okay? So that, that will go public with probably in January. Um, we um, have taken a lot of steps, or at least as much as we reasonably think we can to avoid these situations. Uh, you know, everything is backed up. 
Um, everything we're now on a, a server that's not at a major, you know, hosting service. Um, it's kind of hidden be behind multiple layers. Um, so I'm sure an expert could figure out where we are, but your average left-wing activist looking to take you down can't find out where we are. Uh, and we've done other things like that. Videos, we now, all videos that we post to YouTube after that experience are now backed up to two different places. Um, one of which is not public, one of which is public. So it's no big deal, it's Vimeo. So anything we have on YouTube, we put on Vimeo uh, and anything that's on either of those we have in a separate just storage file uh, so that if we lose things. So we, we take all these things, but you know, the reality is that the uh, you know, left is going after higher levels of internet access. They're going after Cloudflare, Flare, they're going after registrars of, of, of you know, URL address, of IP addresses. They're really, because they know that you, if you don't, you get kicked off of one hosting service, unless you're huge, like, you know, Parler. But if you're your average website, you can switch pretty easily to another hosting service. But if you get your IP address, your domain um, taken down, I mean, then it doesn't matter where you're hosted. Uh, you know, so there's all these sort of things. And I think Parler was one of the scariest examples because it was a coordinated effort to take down a website that had 10 plus million users. Think about that um, on very short notice. I think Amazon gave them notice on Friday that they're gone on Sunday. You can't transfer that. And uh, based on a completely false premise that we now know to be false, the allegation that the January 6th riot was planned on Parler. We now know that's not true. It was planned mostly on Facebook. So uh, that is one of the scariest things. Uh, you know, they were down for two months. They're back, but frankly, they're not what they used to be. When you're down as no, a website that, that, for two months, that forget was, about it. That, yeah, that, that really took the air out of them. I mean, I wasn't loving the experience anyway, but... It was nonetheless, you know, it was a, it was an option, and it was probably going to be a pretty viable option because it had the backing of a lot of really influential people. You know, it's not quite deplatforming, but we're there's no question we're throttled on Facebook and Twitter. I mean, perfect example. We every Christmas Eve for years we used to post a post that I wrote um, called "Christmas Eve in the Ardennes" about U.S. soldiers um, on Christmas Eve during the Battle of the Bulge always a huge hit on Facebook. I mean, four, five, 6,000 shares, which for our page is pretty good. Uh, um, all of a sudden, a couple of years ago, they started throttling us and now we get 50 shares, 70 shares. They don't show our stuff to anybody. We have 350,000 followers on Facebook. We're lucky if they show our content to three or 4,000 people. So there's deplatforming in a different way. So, Bill, you, you know, you're a lawyer. You're, your background is in securities law. You certainly understand a thing or two about supply and demand and how markets work. Isn't it astonishing that companies would agree to throttle the sales? And we have to think of every page view as a sale for them. Every engagement is a sale for them. To their own customers, to their own users. 
to reduce the options of what they offer to their customers. Uh, it seems so counterintuitive to what guys our age grew up learning about how markets work. Well, they're so big, they're, to them, there's no market, okay? There really is no alternative to Facebook. There's not. Okay. There are pockets where you can reach a specific audience, but there's no alternative to Facebook. There's no alternative to Twitter. There's just not. I mean, there are, you know, Facebook, of course, bought Instagram, which might have been a competitor to Facebook. So there's not, there is no market force here. They can do whatever they want. And one thing we've always covered since day one is this campus culture, this campus anti-free speech culture, uh, cancel culture, before they called it cancel culture, and how it has migrated into big tech, that all the crazy stuff that you thought was like so out of line 10, 12 years ago on campus that you read about at Oberlin College or someplace like that. Well, guess where those people are working now? Those students are now in their late 20s and early 30s, and they're in positions of responsibility at major tech companies, and they've brought those campus anti-free speech values to high tech. And that's and obviously to public, at, at the public education. Yeah. So now you, you have been running the work of uh, a mutual friend of ours, the uh, Rhode Island Bet Noir for, for the Teachers Union, Nicole Solis. Um, it's amazing, you know, there's another example of, of the use or the abuse of the legal system to prevent ideas or truth from getting out. This just sounds so facile. You know, yeah, we're all against, we're all against censorship, but, but if we were having this conversation even a year ago, much less five years ago, we would not believe, we just would not believe the extent to which shutting down other people's speech would become an accepted norm in American culture. I know, it's not just an accepted norm on campuses where I actually, you know, uh, one thing I didn't mention is legal insurrection isn't actually my job, okay? <laughs> I was going to ask, uh, but yes, feel free to, to uh, but that's really where I was actually where I was going about your, in terms of your background. Most people don't know as much about your background as I do. Tell us a little bit about your background, Bill, yeah. so, and, uh, and, your, and your present ground. I uh, was in private practice in Rhode Island doing plaintiff securities work and uh, got ill, had to close my law practice in 2006 was home for... Well, you start, didn't you start out in a major firm, though? Yeah, doing... I started off at Cahill, Gordon, and Rindell in New York City. After Folks, that's a pretty snazzy law firm for this kind of work, especially. Yeah. And uh, then I went to a smaller firm. It was a partner at a smaller firm. Just made a life decision in 1993 uh, after a particularly miserable subway ride and Long Island Railroad ride that I can't take this anymore. This is going to kill me, this community. Oh, what? I remember that exact experience. <laughs> it's like 9,000 9, degrees on the subway platform. You know, you're in a suit and it's like, this is crazy. So we decided to move to Providence, Rhode Island. We looked to where we wanted to go. We looked into it. We said it was a good place uh, for a legal practice because 
it's a state capital, so you've got a federal court, you've got a state Supreme Court, all within two blocks of an office. You know, so it was a good place, a smaller state. Uh, and, and so we moved here in 1993, and I did plaintiff securities work out of Providence, but with a national practice. And uh, like I said, and then in 2006, had to shut the, the law firm down uh, and saw that Cornell was looking, Cornell Law School was looking for somebody in my specific subspecialty. Um, which is securities arbitration at the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority. So I oh, tossed oh. in a resume. Next thing you know, I'm hired, much to my surprise. And all this, so from November of 2007 to the president to the present, I've been uh, a clinical law professor at uh, Cornell Law School. Had various titles, but now it's clinical law professor, and uh, you know have been there. Now it's approaching 14, 15 years, something like that. Uh, so that's, that's a ways from Providence, job. though. But that's, that's a bit of a hike from Providence. It is. It's very tiring. Um, we split the year between Ithaca and Rhode Island. We have houses oh. in both places. Uh, you know, the last two years has been extensively remote, but remote teaching. But prior to that, when school was in session, we were mostly in Ithaca. And when it wasn't, we were mostly in Rhode Island. And, you know, it worked out well, but it is a schlep. It's six hour drive between the two. But I, I think we would both agree that a, sh a six hour drive can compare favorably to fewer than six one hour train rides in the summer either on the, you know, uh, on the E-train or whatever, yeah. you know, whatever it was you were taking to escape the city to <laughs> get onto right. the LIR, yep. ready, you know, changing in, you know, in, in these classy locations in Queens. So what gives you hope? You know, you're, you're well, let, let me ask you, actually, let me come back around to what you were just saying about your, um, your work now, you're doing your, your, your clinical professor teaching about securities arbitration. Yep. That's an interesting subject to teach at an Ivy League law school because you're now teaching the products of this indoctrination. They've already been indoctrinated for five years by the time they get to you because they can't take your courses the first year. Um, and you're talking about you're teaching the subject neutrally, not as an activist. Here's what plaintiffs have to do to get the money back from those scumbags on Wall Street. But rather, this is what security arbitration is about. This is what the issues are. This is the procedural. This is the substantive. Are, is the, can you tell a difference from 20 years from when you first started in terms of the ideological baggage these kids are taking into school into class well i can't really kids, speak however all they might be i can't speak about what the students say because i literally in class don't talk politics with them okay i no i mean about the subject i mean about the subject matter. oh uh no i haven't because i have the impression uh-huh i haven't noticed a big change in the substance of it uh so I don't think, you know, the securities law piece has become overly politicized the way many other areas have. That's not to say they're not moving in those directions. Uh, you know, California has a law uh, regarding the uh, breakdown of gender breakdown on 
company boards and things like that. But that's not really a securities law issue. That's more like a state corporate law issue. So I haven't seen it uh, get that bad in securities law itself. Do you, how about interacting with faculty? Well, uh, you know, I stand alone at Cornell, uh, pretty much. Not completely alone, but mostly alone in terms of uh, certainly at the law school, there are no openly politically conservative professors other than me. There might be people who harbor those thoughts, uh, but there's nobody who's public the way that I am. Uh, and the same is true at Cornell University. 16, 17, 1800 faculty members, something like that across the university. Uh, I am far and away the most vocal. There are some who agree with me. I know that. Uh, but they're mostly quiet. There uh, are a few who might dabble in things, but you know, there's a professional price and emotional price that gets paid by anybody who is an openly conservative. I wouldn't even say openly conservative. I'd say openly not liberal. Okay, you don't have to be quote unquote conservative, whatever that means these days. Uh, but somebody who's openly not liberal, it is so bad that even liberals are complaining on campus. There was a letter to the editor two months ago, something like that, from a group of self-identified liberal students at Cornell in the school newspaper, um, demanding or calling on the school to adopt the so-called Chicago principles that have been adopted at the University of Chicago, essentially uh, free expression, academic freedom, et cetera. And these self-identified liberal students talked about how toxic the campus is because of the uh, aggressive progressive, uh, I don't know if they use the term progressive, but left-wing, far left-wing students are so aggressive that even liberal students are afraid to speak out. So that- It's is, amazing that they did. Yeah, it's amazing it's really that they did, but that was a bold move. Uh, you know, Cornell and other universities have long histories, and I'm very familiar with what's going on at Cornell because I'm the faculty advisor to most of the right of center student groups because they literally have nobody else to go to. Uh, and I hear stories about what goes on and students live in absolute fear of social media and what will be said about them and how they'll be attacked on social media if they were to speak out on any of the hot button issues. So, you know, I, I think the students, I don't know that the student opinions have changed that much. The willingness of students to express those opinions have changed. And you have about 10% of the student body um, who controls the other 90%, mostly through internet shaming. And it's also is... true for faculty that you know most faculty will not speak out uh, again. So, uh, and surveys, my anecdotal evidence is backed up by surveys. Foundation for Individual Rights in Education for the last two years has done a national survey of college students along with a couple of other groups they teamed up with and uh, found findings that are completely consistent with what I've seen, including at Cornell, that the majority, and it varies by school, but it's very consistent, majority of students are uh, afraid to express their opinions. At Cornell, it's running 60 to 70% are afraid to express their opinions on campus. Uh, and for fear of the reaction. And that's, so that's completely consistent with what I have observed at Cornell through these anecdotes that come my way. 
And I notice, you know, even on legal insurrection, I think you have some people who do not use their own names to write. We have only two people now. Uh, that has changed. A couple of them, that's a hangover from the early blogosphere days. So one person we have um, was in education and did not want her real name used for fear of losing her job. Um, the only a second person who uses a pseudonym, but she's kind of come out. So she still uses that for writing, but it's not hard to find out who she is. But there were other people. There was somebody um, who uh, used to be work at a liberal theater company. And he used a pseudonym for many years until he left and then uses his real name now. What's your opinion of anonymity on the internet? I understand it completely. When I started the website in October, 2008, I was so naive about the internet. I mean, I really didn't like think it through. You may have heard the story before, but I started the website basically on a challenge from a former client who I had gotten into a long argument with about the 2008 election. And uh, I'd won a lot of money for him. And at the end of it, he says, oh, I've never heard anybody explain your side as well as you do. Either he or his daughter said, you should start a blog. And I had no idea what a blog was. Um, and so I came up with the name Legal Insurrection because I said word association. Well, the association I'm feeling is insurrection. That's the word I'm feeling, 2008. Oh. <laughs> I said, but that's, I looked it up. I said, that's actually by definition illegal. So that's not a good thing to have. So I'll call it legal insurrection, which is actually something of a contradiction in terms, but it's worked, it's our brand. But I was so naive. It didn't, I didn't even realize you could just like pick a pseudonym. I just assumed. So I started it in my own name and I had no idea. I didn't think about it, but I can tell you, I started, my first post was October 12th, 2008. By the end of October, the law school was already getting emails from people. And I was getting nasty grams about how terrible it was that I was on the law school faculty writing this sort of stuff uh, against the Obama election of, you know, was he wasn't president yet, but he was gonna be elected. And so- And of course, though, in those days you could start a blog. Yeah. And if you, if you had some kind, so you see, if you would have been anonymous, it would have been that much harder. Yes. There was probably more interest by virtue of your being on the faculty at Cornell Law School than, uh, you know, if it would have been, you know, fuzzy boots. Um, but within a month, you can become known. Yeah, <laughs> and people were very friendly. People would share, people would link to you. And that's really how my stuff got out, even in the early weeks. For some reason, people linked to it and shared it. That camaraderie in conservative media is pretty much gone. Yes, I mean, I remember, you, you might recall that I, for a while, was an author, a contributing author at, at Dean's World, which was one of the, you know, dominant early conservative blogs. And because I felt it was off topic to write about politics, this was before Twitter, on likelihood of confusion. And there, yeah, it was a, you know, there was this cross-linking and, the, and there were the blog carnivals, you know, where people would do a roundup of, of what people were saying in other blogs. And it was understood that pretty much no one was making money on this stuff. 
Glenn Reynolds started running ads to, from Amazon. You know, that was kind of an interest. <laughs> oh, wow. Is he going to monetize this or something? <laughs> I'm not even sure we use the word monetize in those days. Yeah. I mean, Twitter basically killed both the left and right wing blogospheres. Because think about it, you right. start your own blog. It's a lot of work. You got to create a lot of content. You got to get it out there. And you're doing all this work and 200 people a day are visiting you, okay? Twitter comes along and if you scream loud enough and if you're outrageous enough, and even if you're not, you can pick up thousands or tens of thousands of followers right away. It's not a lot of work. There's no expense to it. Of course, there is a price we now know, which is that they'll kick you off or they will... Um, you know, uh, shadow ban you or whatever the phrases happen to be. So there is a price to it. But, and so if you're a small blogger, why would you maintain a blog when you can just go on Twitter and reach a lot more people and you're not making any money anyway? So what difference does it make that Twitter doesn't pay you? And well, not only that, I, you know, I used to, I, I look back on the archives of my blog and frequently a post would be a link to another blog surrounded by some text. Uh, you know, um, Marty Schwimmer writes about, uh, you know, the new, the new trademark statute that's being considered by the Ways and Means Committee or whatever that, you know, and that, that would be a post. Well, that's a tweet now. Yeah. And that's not even, that's a tweet. So what, you know, may as well be where the people are because you're not going to drag them to where you are to see you, you know, write a tweet like that. Bill, any projects you're going to write the book, the, the, the movie, the opera? Well, we, we did start a separate project last February uh, called criticalrace.org. So we were a little bit ahead of the wave on all this stuff. Uh, people think it's the controversy has been around forever. It really hasn't. I mean, there was some controversy in 2020, but the current, there we go, criticalrace.org. And uh, we started that in early February, it's a database of school, higher ed schools and uh, what they are doing in the critical race area. Not everybody on the list is doing a lot, but we provide the data, we provide the information. We let parents and students figure out for themselves. Uh, we're now up to about 450 schools. Our goal is to get to 500. We've also started covering elite private schools. Um, and if you, we have information on 1619 Project, many other things, um, a lot of links. There we go. So we've gotten a lot of publicity because we've started covering the elite private schools. And the, the list is not everybody who's doing it. It's the top 50 schools as ranked by some ranking service. So what we do is we have researchers who go in uh, and document what they're doing. Uh, all public information. As of now, it's just public information, things that are on their websites. The universities, it's very easy because they love to brag about this stuff. They love to pat themselves on the back about all the stuff they're doing in this area. The private schools, some are like that, some are not. So some of them we have to dig a little deeper. But those are areas, and we started this before there, I mean, the, the real surge of interest in CRT came in like the April, May timeframe. And a lot of the groups who are now operating in that area didn't exist. Uh, at the beginning of this calendar year. Uh, and so we got in just ahead of that wave. And this is a big part of what we do now also. Uh, and we'll, we'll be expanding that. We're gonna revamp that website. Uh, and we're you know, putting efforts into the foundation. We're trying to get a little bit more aggressive in the things that we do. 
one of the things we're doing now is we've always done since day one, we've had a split personality that we've always been, we started as part of kind of the Tea Party movement, not affiliating with any group, but kind of as of that movement, conservative movement. So that's always been our thing, but we've also been part of the pro-Israel world since the inception, covering the boycott movement, covering the malicious actors in the US, uh, things like that. So we continue to do that. And we're right now uh, addressing uh, Middle East Studies Association is moving towards the boycott. Uh, and so that's something. So we've gotten involved, not so much lately in the campus things, but more in the faculty association things, uh, you know, trying to uh, ad address these things. And it's a mixed bag. Uh, for the most part, they have not been effective at actually implementing a boycott, but they have been, I think, effective at changing the opinions, particularly of younger people. The yep. constant year after year after year, we're now going on approaching two decades on US campuses of nonstop propaganda, I think is shifting younger people's views. Um, and that's their goal. They have a generational project. Okay, their project, and they, they say this, and it took me a while to fully understand it, BDS or the Boycott Divestment Sanctions, they say is just a tactic. It is a tactic that they use to undermine US support for Israel. They actually don't care if you buy Sabra Hummus. They, they really don't care. They'll make it seem like the crime of the century, but they don't care. If they can get a campus to spend two months debating whether Sabra Humis should be boycotted because of how evil Israel is, and they lose the vote. They, they don't care, okay? Because that it's just a tactic to get the demonization of Israel in front of students. And it's become a lot worse with the so-called social justice movement and also the Black Lives Matter movement, where from the inception, and we covered this at the website, from the inception of Black Lives Matter in 2013 and 2014, anti-Israel activists were deeply embedded and deeply committed to redirecting that movement against Israel. And uh, so this is it for them, a generational project. American pro-Israel, American Jewish groups do not understand that at all. They have- Well, they also don't want to rock the boat with the Democratic Party, which is to them really the, the altar at which yep. most of them worship. Bill, I'm great having an extended conversation with you that isn't about some hot water that we've gotten ourselves into. Um, I really am so glad that we that we did it finally and that uh, you're doing exciting stuff on the website. And I thank you so much for culminating with me today. Great. And uh, we'll keep an eye on each other okay. as, we, as we tend to do. Thank you. Take care. You too. Hey, thank you for listening to the Coleman Nation podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com. Or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day.